1: radio the voice of the indoor air quality industry yes the rules have changed Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, episode number 88, on Friday, July 11th, 2008. My name is Cliff Slotnick, or the Z-Man, and here with me in Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania, are the wingman, Chris Boizel.
2: Good afternoon, Cliff.
1: Hey, thanks for coming, Chris, and guest host, Environmental Anne.
2: Good afternoon, Cliff. Good afternoon, Chris.
1: Hey. We have Andy Lucky with us. Uh, my guest host, Radio Joe Hughes. We expect to be participating remotely from Rockville, Maryland. We have our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, this morning. How are you doing, Dieter?
3: Well, I can barely make out that this war, there were like two or three notes from Beethoven.
1: Okay. Well, we, we had to cut you short. Okay. Our goals at IQ Radio are to be interesting, informative, and entertaining. On IEQ Radio, you'll hear the views and opinions of the hosts and our guests. You can contact me at Zlotnik at unsmoke.com. You can contact Radio Joe Use by emailing to him at joe.use@iqtraining.com. at ieqtraining.com. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with our guest, Dr. Chin Yang, Ph.D., and our traditional roundup. We'd like to thank today's sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com.
2: DryEase products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions, dri zcom
1: John Don products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at J-O-N. DON.com.
2: Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com.
1: In order to contact the show live by phone or text message, simply go to www.talkshoe.com website and follow directions to obtain a PIN number. Our show ID number is 1547. We appreciate suggestions, we'll answer your questions, and even take requests if you email us at info at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Com. All right, uh, trivia time. Congratulations to two winners. Matt Fredrickson of Clark Seif Clark answered the hurricane question, and Dan Reed of Intuitive Environmental Solutions answered the influenza question.
2: Microband trivia question for Friday, July 11, 2008. The subject matter for today's trivia question is microscopes. For his many great contributions, many discoveries, research papers, and design prototypes, who is widely recognized as the father of microscopy? Thank you. All right.
1: I'll tell you a little bit about our guest this afternoon. Mr. Chin S. Yang, Ph.D., received his B.S. and M.S. degrees in biology in Taiwan and his Ph.D. degree in forest and environmental biology from the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York. Over the last 25 years, he has worked with physicians, public health officials, industrial hygienists, and environmental and occupational health scientists on various issues of fungal and bacterial exposures. Dr. Yang has given numerous scientific and technical lectures and seminars and has published more than 50 scientific articles, as well as 10 reviews and book chapters. He is co-editor of two scientific books on mold and dealing with microbial problems in the indoor environment. He currently joined uh, a group to start Prestige Environmental Microbiology, Inc., and serves as its scientific and technical director. How about Dr. Yang's intro music? Dr. Yang, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us on IAQ Radio. Dr. Yang, can you hear us okay? Yes, uh,
4: this is Chenyang. Yeah.
1: Oh, perfect, perfect. All right, well, let's go back in history a little bit, and uh, I'd like you to tell us, you know, as a pioneer who found himself really at the outset of the mold rush, I'd like to get your take on, on history. When did you first become involved with mold in indoor environments?
4: Well, I, my first involvement was in the early 80s when I was, uh, you know, a poor graduate student up in Syracuse in New York. And, you know, graduate students are always poor and they're always looking for some opportunities. Mm-hmm. So I was introduced to an artist, uh, who was looking for someone to identify more for her patients. And that's how
1: I get started. I see. Uh, who were some of the other early movers and shakers in the mold rush, and from what fields of endeavor did they come?
4: Well, uh, when I when I was getting started, I was looking uh, for information, so I did some literature search. And back then, in in the nineteen eighties, the literature search is not as easy as today. You can go to internet, so I did a lot of the uh, library uh, running around and. It's all, and, and all the pro- publications and articles always has two, three names associated with. Uh, for medical side of it, uh, the first name I saw very often is Dr. Michael Hodgson, mm-hmm. uh, who was with uh, NIOSH, University of Pittsburgh, with uh, University of Connecticut. And I believe now he's working for the federal government department of uh, VA. And another name is Dr. Phil Mori. I'm sure many of them have run into him, or have read his articles, or saw him, or listened to his, his presentations. And Dr. Morris is uh, was more from environmental investigation, assessment, and and also occasionally getting into remediation. Now the third name I saw it every so often is Dr. Harriet Birch. Uh, she's also a mycologist, and she has worked with Dr. Hodgson and. And Dr. Maury, and I believe then she was at the University of Michigan. So these are the roughly about the three names I, I run into, a boy, frequent and often in the literature. So that was uh, pretty much what, what happened in the, in the early 90s, I mean 80s.
1: You know, of the folks that you mentioned, and I think that there were some others, I think that there naturally would be remediators who would do the remediation work. There might be uh, attorneys. Uh, there might be some other medical professionals and, and so on and so forth. Um, were everyone's motivations the same? I mean, um, you know, your motivation, I suspect, was, was the science part of it. You know, was everyone motivated by science or uh, did other people have different types of motivations?
4: Well, I, I think everybody has their encounters or, or you will, their callings to get into dealing with more. Uh, my understanding is that, like Dr. Hodgson and Dr. Mori, uh, they they are called in to deal with, water uh, uh, than damaged building, moldy building, and then with uh, people becoming sick or have all kind of different symptoms. And my primary motivation, as I I indicated earlier, was that you know I was a pro poor, poor graduate student. I needed a second income. That's how I get into it. Mm-hmm. However, as I get into it, I found that uh, in terms of scientific literature, there are a lot of information about more cause allergies in the medical literature, and, and but there were very little, we're talking about this in uh, the 1980s, very little about what kind of molds you would find in, in the indoor environment, whether residential or commercial building. Basically, it's very, very little. Basically, it's, it's, if it's not desert, basically, it basically means just... Uh, it's there have you have a few cacti around. So it's not very abundant in terms of more information in the indoor environment. That's what we're talking about in the 1990s.
2: You are from the Northeast. Where were the geographic hotspots in the early mold days?
4: Well, in, in the mold days, uh, primarily, those start from the medical uh, community. I mentioned about allergies. And analogies, they, they knew very little about more in mycology. So I get caught on very often. Now, once we get into the 90s, uh, in the early day of indoor air quality, most of the focus on VOCs, sort the of off-gassing of uh, various type of chemicals, in, including formaldehyde, and also a little bit about ventilation. So in the 90s, the, the first half of the 90s, the, the more microbial issue is show up in the literature every so often, but was not a primary concern then. But in terms of geography, uh, we're talking about this uh, in the 90s, it's starting mostly in California. Uh, there have a few cases in New York State. Florida, as you would expect because of the weather, as well as the hurricane season. Those type of things. And because of uh, geographical uh, closeness to California there was some in Arizona. and then once we get into the 21st century, many of you know about Texas uh, they were talking about 2000 to 2003. there was when the Melinda Ballard's case uh, was on the news prints the TV very often. And some of you probably know, Melinda Ballas, she came from PR background, so she had a lot of access to the news media. And then she uh, she contacted her friends, and then her case was on the news a lot. And that sort of kind of uh, created a lot of awareness in the general public. And that's how things spread it out.
1: Chen, what was your involvement with the New York City guidelines on assessment and remediation of fungi in indoor environments?
4: Well, the, the name you, you mentioned actually is the second version of the new so-called New York City guideline, which was first published in 2000. And many of you probably know there was another version before that, which was published in 1993, 1994. And that version was a bit more specific. They were, they were named Stachyboltris artra which is the older synonym of Stachyboltris chatara, as we know today. And in the early 90s, I, um, my laboratory then uh, received a lot of samples from uh, uh, an industrial hygienist and environmental health safety person from uh social service union. In New York City, and they have a lot of their members in New York City government-owned and leased buildings, while the New York City uh, boroughs. And a lot of these buildings are poorly maintained, so you got leaks, and some of the leaks apparently has last for many, many, many years, and then means more in bacteria growth, and some of their members complaining. So these. This particular individual health safety person collects samples sent to us, and we found a lot of different types of moles, baggy, aspergillus, penicilliums. And he was calling me all the time to ask for the information whether ecological or medical or health effects. So I tried to provide as much information as possible. From that, they went up all the way to the New York City uh, uh, mayor's office, and which then in turn contact Mount Sinai Medical Center, Occupational Health Center. And from there, they organized what they call mall workshop. It's a one-day workshop focused on mall only. And during the workshop, it was eventually only focused on Stachibosch, and or ultra then. And they kind of discussed the ways of the mall, which I said, well, you know, you really don't have no choice. When they grow, they all grow together. But the, doc- the first document came out as a Staggy Bojartwa only. And I was invited to participate in their workshop and I think along uh, among the attendees other than the, the city people, the, the union people, they invite five five panelists. Fiori Mori was among one of them, Bruce Jarvis, some of you probably know mm-hmm. he's Specialties sure. in mycotoxin. He retired from University of Maryland. Uh, Dave, uh, David Miller from Canada. He's another uh, well-informed scientist on uh, more issues. And then a couple of I kind of forget, I believe they are from somewhere in Georgia, one of the universities. And I was called in to represent the union just in case they have different issues, they want me to help them. And Dr. Eckard Johanning at that time was at University uh, at the Mount Sinai Medical Center. So from that one day of discussion, the New York City guideline first, first version was published in late 1993, early 1994, and the 2000 version it was the second version. And in fact, I believe in a couple of months we will probably see the third version coming out from the New York City. You know, I've got. So that wasn't in my involvement.
1: You know, the, the New York City Guidelines on Assessment and Remediation of fungi in these indoor environments uh, uses size of the affected area as the criterion for its remediation recommendations. There's another document, and this document is the IICRC Mold Remediation Standard S520, and this document has a A different view. It says that the size of the affected area really doesn't matter and and opines that these three conditions exist. Uh, Condition one is a normal fungal ecology in the background. Uh, Condition two is that there are settled spores from this condition three area. And this condition three area is an area where we have actual growth. Do you have an opinion on, you know, when it comes to mold remediation? projects, does the size of the affected area really matter?
4: Well, yeah, I I think uh, uh, in terms of your question, either ISCRC uh, uh, approach or the New York City guideline based on the coverage of more growth, I think those two approach, I think really it's more look at the same uh, topic from two different angles. Now New York City guidelines is uh in terms of surface area for the different type of contaminant protection. The theory is this the larger coverage area the more spores you're gonna have and once the more spores on surface got disturbed, more of them are gonna become airborne and that's get into the dose uh response relationship issues so that's where was the primary reason the New York City guidelines come up with the three which is now four different categories. And many of you know the 10 square foot, 30 square foot, and 100 square foot issues. Actually, the, the 10 square foot actually come from the the typical ceiling tile 2 by 4 mm-hmm. which means 8 square foot, foot. That So run it up to 10. And the 30 square foot actually come from the piece of drywall 4 by 8 Then you got 30, 32 square feet running up to to 30 square feet which is the, the so-called uh, medium or middle uh, level protection and then uh, anything larger than we're talking about 30 to 100 or, or larger. Now IICRC's approach I can see is that a condition one normal ecology basically means it's what you normally expect it, background level you don't need to deal with it. And then the second level is uh, you've got shadow spores. Now, that depends on what kind of spores there. If you have starchy, ketomium or a lot of aspergillus, penicillium spores, or menonealus, those type of unusual spores, they I would call contamination. That means if you got contamination or you need pretty much just wipe it down with some kind of uh, wet damp uh, cloth or some type of mild disinfectants, you will solve the problem. The third condition, the actual growth, which actually in some ways uh comparable with what New York City guidance tried to tell us. If you got actual growth and you see visible growth, that means how many square footage of visible growth you need to get rid of it. That translates what kind of protection you're going to need for the environment as well as for the walker. So I don't see that ISCRC and New York City, and Ghana in some way conflict with each other. To me, they're they complementary to each other.
2: Why are hospital infection control personnel more concerned about Legionella aspergillus than they are about Stachybotrys?
4: Well, uh, well the reason is very simple. Uh, Legionella bacteria and some of the aspergillus species primary aspergillus are what we call opportunistic pathogens. That means they typically attack and, in fact, immune-compromised or immune-suppressed uh, patients. And most of the time, we people go into hospital, other than some people walk in the hospital or some people go in there to deliver baby, most of the people check into hospital with some type of underlying disease and maybe even weaken immune system, which makes them very susceptible to infections. So once you've got this Legionella bacteria infection or Aspergerous infection, and if your body is immune deficient, you have a very poor chance of survival, even with all of what we know, the, the medicine and treatment. So it typically has very high death rate once get infected. Now, on the other hand, in stachybotrys, the hospital may not pay a lot of attention. And the primary reason is that stachybotrys do not cause infection. I mean, poultry spores can germinate at body temperature. and may grow a little bit, but they are not very aggressive at body temperature in humans. So they don't cause infection, which does not translate into death directly. But my belief and my impression over the last few years is that most of the hospitals now realize that the growth of Stachybotrys or any kind of more in the hospital is not a good sign because that also points to moisture control issues. And if you've got a moisture control issue, some aspergillus, as you know, are going to grow. And that can translate into infection and also infection issues. So in terms of the the divide between the genera aspergillus and stachybotrys and other types of mold growth and infestation are slowly converging.
2: Since the 1600s, people have known about bacteria and may have even suspected that they could be responsible for health problems. What brought mold to the forefront?
4: Well, uh, bacteria actually, it's, it's... are very important in medical uh, literature. But the medical community typically focuses on infection issues. But we also know a lot of bacteria produce all kinds of different byproducts, chemicals, toxicants. For example, some of you are probably aware of endotoxins. And some of these stuff can also complicate other issues such as immune system and infections. Now, mold was brought into the forefront is, uh, in many ways, some people call it the perfect storm. And the reason is that, over the years, most of the medical uh, professionals consider mold a nuisance, other than a few can cause infection. But slowly, we realized that a lot of these molds produce allergens and produce mycotoxins and also produce a, a wide variety of chemicals. And some of you probably know, for example, cyclosporine, which is very commonly used in bone marrow transplant to support immune system. And cyclosporine are produced by a few species of fungi, which means some fungi-produced chemical can interfere with the immune system. So we slowly realized that the fungi go inside the building Typically considered nuisance are uh, a problem. So with all this awareness, slowly we build up our understanding, and with the legal professionals involved in the process and, and information get into news media, so everything kind of explode. And this is what talking we talking about the late night, nineteen nineties uh, and early two thousand.
1: How can you account for your acknowledgement as the preeminent microbiologist in these noteworthy early mold cases? And what made PK the preeminent mold lab? You know, what were you doing different personally and, and with the business that your competition wasn't doing?
4: Well, I think it's when you deal with mold or any type of uh, microbial associated with. Problems, the bottom line is going to be the scientific knowledge. And you need to know what kind of organism you deal with. Now, in terms of dealing with mold, uh, there's a specific uh, discipline of the science we call mycology. And mycology is the scientific study of fungi, molds, and yeast, and also lichens. Now, there are not too many mycologists internationally. So the study of mycology is typically very limited to the universities. And also within the mycology, there are certain specialties. For example, some mycologists specialize in mushrooms. Now, mushrooms don't typically grow indoors. So the mycologists specialize in mushrooms. They don't deal with the type of mold grow indoors very well, so that limit the number of my colleges know how to deal with the type of mold grow indoors, and because of my training and my interest and my contact, and the need to deal with, with the allergy patients, their molds. And I start looking into the literature, and also because of my training and my background into the ecology of the type of mold species from indoors. And then I try to pass on to this information to educate the professionals, whether the CIH is for the or professional engineers or the uh, environmental professionals who are dealing with various type of more issues. So the bottom line is testing the information, educate the people uh, how to use the information. And I think that's what the people want. It's not a typical uh, laboratory, you produce laboratory reports and give it to the, to the user of whoever submitted a sample and that's it, that's not, not what people want. They want to know what do the results in your report mean and how they can apply those results into their specific project or their specific building or the specific house.
1: I think this is probably a good point to stop. I think I'm going to allow, I'm going to bring on Dr. Weil, and he may have some questions or comments from really the first half of the show. Sure. Dieter?
3: Yes, let me go back to my telephone, not the speakerphone here. Let's turn. There we go. Uh, Yeah, I listened very carefully, and uh, Dr. Young gave away his age. I also remember going to libraries and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when there were no Xerox machines and you had to read the book and abstract it yourself. I didn't even, We didn't even know what a computer was or what an internet was, for that matter. But anyway, I, um, I have a question that bothers me for quite some time. And I went through something not similar or parallel, in a parallel development. I was around and I was at the University of Pittsburgh where I worked, by the way, with uh, Michael Hoskin.
4: Um,
3: And uh, at the time, we were interested in asbestos and asbestos fibers and identifying asbestos fibers. And at the time, NIOSH had a method, I had a method. Of course, my method was the best one. And uh, Johns Hopkins had a method, the Mayo Clinic had a method, a bunch of other universities. We all had different methodologies on how to count them and count them right. I was fortunate I was uh, using a microscope, a ZEISS microscope, which cost us about $35,000. And miraculously, my counts were always higher than anybody else's, mainly because I had a better re- resolution. Mm-hmm. But the big problem was, yeah, when we were talking about airborne concentrations, uh, we were obviously comparing apples and oranges. And I That's think fair. we are at this stage right now in mycology or in microbiology, You know, I guess we kind of, if we take a total sample with one of the impactors available, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Uh, They have been designed for us. We run 15 liters a minute through it. Uh, There's an impaction parameter which impacts uh, uh, particles onto a slide. And that slide is then removed in the laboratory and we look at it with a microscope. And that's where the problem starts. I know a uh, a laboratory over here. They use oil immersion and a 1,000 magnification. Is that good, bad, or indifferent? I don't know. I know other labs. They use the, the dry, high dry 64. That would be uh, 640 uh, magnification. I uh, know others. They use the calibrated microscopes for asbestos, which um, is at 400. And so that is one of the problems. The other one, which agar do I use? Uh, is there a universal agar? I mean, I'm well aware of the fact that not all molds like one particular agar, but I think we should be at this stage of the game close enough that we can say, well, from what we know, maybe in Finland, maybe in Germany, it's a little different, maybe in the United States, a little different, and in the United States, good God, yeah, you know, we have ice cold weather up north and hot weather down there, so that is a problem. But I think we kind of know, or should know by now, what the, should we call it, indicator species are that we are looking for, and can we then use, quote, a universal agar. Boy, that is a long question.
4: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think it's a long question, and also have several different parameters to, to look at these uh, in terms of sampling and testing. Uh, on the other hand, the answer is relatively simple. No, we still don't have uh, one simple sampling method or one simple analytical method to address all the more issues or, or to to identify every single more in the air or in the samples. And, 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 and the difference is just like what we see on Earth because some some molds, what we call xerophytic fungi, that like to grow on dry conditions, just like when you go to Arizona desert. Right. And then there are some more that like to grow in forest, just like stacky botches. So they have their physiological and eco- ecological needs. So you are not going to have one simple medium uh, suitable for both xerophytic and hydrophytic fungi. Correct. So that kind of makes things complicated. And also in terms of sampling, uh, different type of sampling equipment has different efficiencies by itself. They, the collection efficiencies are also affected by the type of fungal spores. And if you have seen the spores under the microscope, you know their shape and size, just like you and I. With some some people are seven feet tall and, and myself is five one and some some people uh it's 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 uh, uh, five hundred pounds and some people it's one hundred pounds. So you got different size, different shapes. That's also affect the sample collection efficiency. So that's that makes things it's much more complicated. And many of you probably also have heard about a new sampling and well not sampling but analytical methods called PCR polymerase chain reaction, sure. sure. which is, was patented and developed by by uh, US EPA. And one of the thesis behind that is that they were hoping the PCR methods uh, can be used as a standardized uh, techniques for analyzing airborne or any type of environmental, for you know, dust samples for environmental fungi. But even if a, sen- uh, a standardized method, the bottom is still going to be people. Because the machines, the calibration, the, the, the extraction of DNA, it's all come from people. And my old employee was the first commercial laboratory commercialized the EPA PCR methods. And we actually used the, the, the methods very effectively in several different cases in Queensland, in the World Trade Center like September 11, and also involved in, in the Ed McMahon case uh, in a forensic matter. So it w- the bottom line is that you're going to still have all this new and old methodology around each methodology serves its purpose. And the user of the sampling and testing results need to understand when you need to use PCR or when you can use AL cell for sport counting or when you need to do Anderson or sometimes you may need to use a combination of all. So it depends in a lot of situations and I don't believe there will be help, there will be one method fit all in the near future.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, Dieter, thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
3: Uh, obviously, that there, there is such a variety over there. If you have an have an asbestos fiber, you know, regardless of what the chemical makeup of that chemical uh, of that fiber is, there are a handful at very best. And here in 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 in, in this arena, we are you know, working with you know, several hundred different species, and uh, which 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 makes uh, things uh, interesting. Yes.
4: Yeah, yeah it, it, it's the diversity of the more sports uh, in a while make it interesting, but also make it more complicated. Well,
3: that's right. On the other hand, like I always taught my students, if you do a make a measurement and you know what the error is of that measurement, well, then there is no error. If you are aware of it, you know, the minute you start, yes, I know there is an error, and but then it doesn't become an error anymore because you compensate for that. And well, that
4: that's true, but you know, if 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 you know the error, you always can can make a correction. That's right. Well. and yeah. but, you know, it w- go back to what you talked about asbestos. Kind of interesting is that I I actually also did several years of asbestos. I, I'm collection. aware of that. <laughs> and and that's that's an interesting inters- uh, intersection with the airborne mold was that when I was analyzing somebody's PC, uh, the PCM samples. And as you know that are definition of fibers one to three one to right? three longer than Res-
3: five micrometers yes
4: that's right and some of the small spores actually fit the definition <laughs> and, and during spring seasons a lot of certain part of the country you have a lot of these art school spores fit the fiber definition now i'm in my college so when i look at i know that you know what it is spores. but they fit the definition so i also have the count them as fibers
3: that is, that is correct. This is, uh, that is the methodology that EPA slash NIH tells you. That if it's that, yeah. you've got to count it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Even though you may know it's a nylon fiber or whatever, well, that doesn't matter.
4: That's correct. Uh, yeah.
3: they, they simplified the methods, and I knew there were uh, uh, legal and practical uh, uh, reasons for that at the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, not, not everybody could do everything or for that matter, go and look at every fiber with an electron microscope. There were only a handful of microscopes available in this country. When I started that, this is 40 years ago, yeah.
1: All right. Well, Uh, uh, uh. Chin, let's go back in history a little bit. Let's go back to the early mold remediation training at Merck, Mid-Atlantic Hygiene Resource Center. Whose idea was it to put that together, because that was the first course, personally, I, I had ever taken in mold remediation, and you were pretty heavily involved in, in doing that course. So can you just comment on that a little bit?
4: Yeah. At the the Mid-Atlantic uh, Environmental height Resource Center, you know, has a, it's a very interesting uh, history. Actually, there was, this was in the early 1990s. Uh, when I was with the U.S. Public Health Service in Philadelphia. And we had interaction with uh, Mr. Fran Dugally. Uh He was the IAQ uh, Region 3, the EPA Region 3 IAQ uh, coordinator. And we were talking, we were looking for some type of training uh, specifically on the HVAC system. We want to learn how the HVAC system was designed, was put together, what was run, or what you know, if that what kind of maintenance was done, all those type of issues. And we we call several universities around Philadelphia area. We even call Azure in the land to try to find out do you have those two, three, four days, maybe even five days workshop can teach us and we run into a lot of uh, stone walls. Everybody say you need a minimum of a month. So you know, ideally, you should enroll in our program as a graduate student or student some kind. So from there, we decide to look into uh, the professional uh, who specialize in the HVAC system. And at that time, EPA gives each of their 10 regions $40,000 to educate or to uh, help distribute, disperse information on IAQ. So the EPA decided to contribute their annual budget of $40,000 as a training grant. And the U.S. Public Health Service provide the professional and technical people to teach. And the U.S. Public Health Service people also pay for, for the uh, the fee for these professionals. That's how the, the Merck, the so-called Merck, the acronym of uh, Mid-Atlantic Environmental Hygiene Resource Center came from. And it was started in about 1991, 1992. And with the EPA money and the professional support from the U.S. Public Health Service, the training center was hosted by the University City Science Center. So the central actually staff was to help to to provide technical information on the operation and maintenance of the HVAC system and that slowly evolved into other courses in IAQ in general, more issues and then more remediation and so on.
1: Let me ask you, the, the subject of taking samples it's pretty controversial. Some people say you should take a lot of them. Some people say you shouldn't take them. Some people uh, say that only uh, certified industrial hygienists should take them. Do you have any comment on whether a mold remediation a mold remediator should take their own samples and
4: Actually, that's a very good question. I, I have been asked the same question many, many times, particularly by the remediation contractor. And I think for a while, maybe three, four, five years ago, some of the uh, professional insurance or liability insurance uh, companies uh, told the more remediators don't collect samples. Now I counter and tell them that they should take their samples as long as they know how to collect samples. And the reason is that, you know, when you do more remediations, an industrial hygienist hired by the building owner or the, some the owner of the property as a third party to collect so-called clearance or sometimes we call it quality assurance samples now the problem is this many of these industrial hygienists or environmental professionals supposed to, to do the, the third party sampling and interpretational results themselves do not know how to do sampling and result interpretation properly. And I have done a lot of legal cases, and I would say a significant portion of these IHs and environmental professionals know only superficially how to use the data to do proper interpretations. So eventually, a lot of legal cases, sometimes remediation contracts, got dragged in. So I told these small remediation contractors that if you know how to do samples, you can collect some samples as your own quality assurance. That's another check. You can use that for your own internal quality assurance purpose and also provide another piece of information to make sure the consultant supposed to oversee and clear your project, know what they're doing or not. And I think it's a good approach if the contractor know how to collect samples. Because if you don't do this particular approach, then you are relying on the industrial hygienist or environmental consultant doing all the sampling and interpretation and they may or may not know how to do it right. So you need to protect your own interest.
2: Can you provide some tips on how to interpret airborne fungal spore results derived from the spore counting method?
4: Yeah, I, before I get into that, I want just to say this. You probably know the spores in air can change, and we know it changes with time, change with, change with space. The very basic and typical approach is compared with what's indoors and outdoors which make common sense is that if you find something in the indoor air but not outdoor air that means there's a very good possibility it's what's inside but not outside was probably originate from inside but that's what I say it's very basic, very simplistic and over the year I have developed and evolved into a of many steps type of comparison. For example, if you do air sampling and analyze the sample by uh, spore counting, comparison of total concentration, it's, it's pretty much most of the time not very useful. In fact, more importantly, it's to recognize the so-called indicator or marker fungal spores. For example, chitomium, stachybotrys, or menonial spores, urocladium spores, are not very common outdoors or indoors. So anytime if you see some of these indicator spores, it's a very strong hint or indication. You may have moisture problems. Now, if you get this hint, then you compare. your know. Say yes. I know this building has water damage history. Then when you put two and two together, then you give, you have a better picture. Now a lot of time people also very focused on so called Aspergillus penicillium spores. To me, Aspergillus penicillium spores are secondary, as in terms of importance, because Aspergillus penicillium spores include a lot of other kind of spores, uh, not in aspergillus or penicillium at all. So it's it's a mixture of a lot of different things. So you compare aspergillus spores, penicillium spores, indoor and outdoor, really did not give you a good picture at all. But sometimes it can be useful if the difference indoors and outdoors are statistically different enough. That kind of imply to tell people that sometimes you may need to do statistics to compare what's indoors and outdoors to see if they are in fact different i a lot of times see consultants say okay indoors asperger penicillin 100 outdoors 80. so 100 is 20 spores per meter cube higher than outdoors then yes you got problem now if you do statistics 180 indoor and outdoors may not be different enough at all. So the approach can be very complicated. The general principle of indoor and outdoor comparison is fine, but there are more details we need to look into. And in a lot of these microbial data, you're going to find they are actually including two sets. The first set of data are the IDs, what we call qualitative results. And the second set of data are the numbers. Now, numbers are always relative. Don't use microbiological data of numbers in absolute conditions. They, you need to compare. Now, the qualitative data are much more important if we know the fungi, the type of species or Type of spores identified, if we know them enough, we can tell a story behind it. And I mentioned about stacky bosses, Keptomium, Eurocladium, these types of fungi spores are now very common indoors, particularly in a dry, clean environment. If you find them, even sometimes one single spore can be an indication of some moisture issues. So ecological information. Qualitative in, uh, data are much more important in interpretation, and numbers can be useful, but use the numbers in relative comparison purpose only.
1: That's a great answer. Well, uh, let's change subjects just for a minute. What role do bio based allergens, such as insect allergen, dust mite allergen, and pet allergens, have on indoor air quality?
4: Yeah, many of you probably familiar with the IOM uh, report on damp space uh, from 2005. Uh, In that particular book and and the report, actually indicate that in the indoor environment, don't over focus on more. In fact, in the water damage conditions, if more grow, bacteria are going to grow. And if more grow, Some mites, including dust mites, will like to grow too because simply you got moisture to support microbiological and biological activity. And you know also insects will show up because insects will require moisture and some fungi, excuse me, some insects and mites actually feed on fungi, fungal matter. So in terms of insect allergens, dust mites allergens, yes, they are common in the indoor environment and they do cause allergens to sensitive people now in terms of pet allergens such as dog and cats uh, it's another issue people have to deal with and uh, because they are pets so it means a lot of people love pets in their house and pet denders cat denders uh, dog and denders they do cause allergies so in terms of if if a professional is called into an environment and they are report, uh, reports of allergies, don't overlook the possibility of other type of biological allergens such as dust, my dog, and cat, and danders. Now, talking about uh, dog and cat danders, most people say, "Well, dog and cat danders you probably only see in home." That's probably reasonable and logical because most offices do not allow cats, and in offices only in very most uh, very specialized situations, seeing uh, eye dogs are allowed. So you would not expect dog and cat allergen in offices, but. In the night, early 90s, when I was with Public Health Service, we actually get a small amount of money from U.S. EPA to collect samples from five office buildings in uh, Washington DC and Philadelphia, and we find some of these office samples, dust samples, did contain cat and dog allergens. And when we looked into it, we found these are the dog and cat allergens came with people on their coat from their home. And a lot of these allergens, many of you probably know, are proteins. And proteins, in the, in the dry condition, like in the winter, they are statically charged. So they are very easily passed on from uh, home furnitures to the coat. And then the coat will sit on, in a, on a chair in the office. And then the allergen will stick to the chair fabrics. And then they become part of the office. So, don't overlook the possibility somebody's dog and cat allergen can actually come from homes and houses and become part of the office uh, environment. But, yes, the question to you is that, yes, don't overlook the possibility possibility of, of allergen, uh, other biological based allergen, as a contributing factor to human health.
1: You know, from your experience, are dogs worse than cats or are cats worse than dogs in uh, eliciting? Uh, allergens and what sort of sampling method would be most appropriate for indoor allergen sampling?
4: Well, let me answer your second part of the question first. In terms of sampling, typically the recommendation is to collect dust from carpets, uh, also furniture, fabrics, type of things. Air sampling in general is not recommended because uh, the airborne concentration of allergen, of these allergens typically are very small, so you need to collect for many hours and even a couple of days to have enough uh, to be analyzed properly. Now, whether dog allergen may be more reactive than cat, you know, I don't know. However, my experience is that it seems to me there are more people allergic to cats and dogs. Mm-hmm. But on the end, I have seen also a couple of cases. Uh, people allergic to the dogs actually have very severe response. So it's very difficult to say.
1: All right. Well, Dr. Yang, please hang on the line. We're going to go to our final segment, which we call the Roundup. Okay, hopefully we've got uh, my co-host, uh, Joe Hughes. Radio Joe, you there?
3: I am, Cliff. Thank you. Okay. Thanks thanks to the doctor for joining us. It's been an interesting uh, interview from what I caught. I just had a quick, uh, maybe I could get a quick response on um, what your opinion is on ERMI, and is it a useful tool for IEQ investigations as it's currently set up?
4: Uh, Well, I mean, if you talk about Ermi, that means uh, PCR testing. Um, Ermi, as I see it, is it's a very a try to simplify a very complex issues so people people can use it. The only trouble I have is that you know I have seen the Ermi evolve from about you know seven eight years ago when I was involved with as a Know, scientific advisory panel with uh, a rainbow children Clinic in, uh, in Cleveland. G1. That's what I first learned about the ERMI uh, approach. And we look at it, and I have other scientists, such as Phil Mori, Dr. Dave Miller. We look at that, and we realize that the ERMI approach, in some cases, did not meet the ecological uh, understanding we have most. For example, some of the species in ERMI uh, may not be considered as a can grow or it's capable of growing indoors, but in fact, we see them quite often. So I have some reservation of ERMI as we speak today. However, the PCR methods is effective, it's useful, but just like anything else, it's another tool people need to understand the weakness and the strength of PCR. For example, PCR is very, very sensitive. So yes, so a small amount of DNA can be amplified. On the other hand, if the laboratory or the person collect the sample somehow make mistakes or they are error in the process, so the mistakes and error are also amplified. Now, just give me a quick example of how I use and how, how I and Dr. Mori use PCR in the case. is a very famous case in Southern California, actually. This was the Eggman McMahon's case. And the case was there are some conventional testing data by one consultant and get into remediation. And that case, as you know, become litigation. And there are some personal contents were stored away in the warehouse. Then the question was, do this personal contents have more contamination from the mole growth or not? So Dr. Mori collects some dust from somebody's personal contents and we analyze with PCR. And the PCR result actually match up with the original, another consultant's assessment, and their laboratory results perfectly. The type and species of mold grow on drywall we find it on some personal items and the furnishings put in the storage for two years. So again, it's a testing method, it's a useful method, it depends on how you use it. Okay. Dr. Weil. Well,
3: <clears throat> I, I, I listened very carefully and uh, I, I was aware of some of the pitfalls, What some of the I don't want to say problems, but some of the uh, 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 things you've got to be aware of when you are interpreting uh, a data, it's not a straightforward thing. We are talking about a, a biological system over here, and a biological system is not straight math. That's right. Uh, yeah. I, I remember I learned that many, many years ago before I was even interested in mold and mold remediation uh, from the laboratory when uh, we we looked at bacteria uh, at the graduate school of public health university of pittsburgh and i was the original engineer not really i uh, i i worked with a couple of biologists who needed to learn how to sample i was good at sampling but i didn't know a thing about biology <laughs> and growing I, but i learned and growing bacteria we didn't even look at mold so much at the time and you know but what i thought there was a significant difference is oh no 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 said, you know, 800 is just about the same as 400. Don't worry about it. (laughs) And I I looked at it later on statistically and sometimes, yeah, with small numbers, if there would have been one bacterium more, uh, it would have thrown everything the other way around. So it's not, you you just can't look at a naked number and make a wonderful decision. That's probably the bottom line.
4: That's correct. It's, you know, with all the testing you do, if the consultants, the IHEs or whoever have the data, don't know how to do the interpretation correctly. This is, you know, we are wasting time to collect samples and wasting money to have the sample. Yeah.
3: But I, yeah, on the other hand, there are also sometimes other people, and I I uh, was in a, in a cross-examination that was years ago where a lawyer tried to tell me... Um, that uh, there were uh, there were numbers by Ashri were used uh, for indoor air uh, carbon dioxide, and a thousand was yeah you know, below a thousand was okay, and above a thousand was bad. And you know we, I argued uh, for 20 minutes with a, a lawyer uh, who wanted to tell me that his client was exposed to 1,050 ppm of carbon dioxide and that he had significant damage from it. And, uh, you know, you sit there, and uh, he, he, he put all his money on the 1,000. And I said, well, if if that same person, your client, if he exhales 5,000 parts per million of carbon dioxide, I don't think 1,000 will really hurt him. But, uh, again, that's a biological thing, and people look at the numbers and number game only, and uh, that's when uh, things happening,
4: that's correct. The CO two one thousand pp issue was was misused.
3: Oh yeah, it was up, absolutely. Now, I know exactly where it came from.
4: Yeah, it was misused in, in the eight, 1980s. and yep. out of 1980s. That
3: sounds just about right. Yep, that's yeah. when uh, 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 I I worked with those issues. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
2: I have a question for you. Is Stacky Botris Charcharam really the bad actor as made out to be?
4: Well, it depends on where you look at it. Mm-hmm. uh, uh it, it was well known uh, to produce mycotoxins. And by the term, you know, I, I did not create a word mycotoxin mycotoxins. It's been in the literature for probably 70, 80 years. So it means this does have the toxic effects. Uh But the end, from the environmental and ecological uh, point of view, stacky bodies we know uh, like to grow on very wet and damp conditions, and typically in long term water damage wet and damp conditions so from an ecological point of view, anytime you see stacky bodies grow growing it's gonna give you an indication that the environment was wet and damp for a period of time shows uh, effect uh if you follow C D C and the Cleveland Timosedolosis cluster issues. Uh it's somewhat controversial. Uh you know C D C has a panel discussion in early two thousand and published articles that there was a police association. On the other hand also today I'm still waiting for any type of explanation why those infants die, you know, so we don't know, uh, but Stachybotrys chaturam is known to produce mycotoxins, and some of the mycotoxins are very potent. In fact, some of those mycotoxins had been considered to be a biological weapon potential. Mm-hmm. So for, yeah, for general purpose, my advice to people is this. Keep your home, your office, your indoor environment dry and then st- stucky bulges will not show up and grow.
1: That's good advice. Uh, Dr. Yang, is there anything we forgot to ask you? Are there any questions or any, any comment, final comments that you'd like to make?
4: Well, there are a lot of comments, a lot of things I want to talk about. You know, we only maybe have one minute left. and, and A lot of things we talked about today, I actually put into a book, which just published last year. It's called sampling and analysis of indoor microorganisms, and I am the primary editor with Patricia Hansen, Dr. Patricia Hansen of uh, San Francisco area. It was published by Wiley, W i l e y, last year, and we have a, a couple of uh, unique chapters on the fungal ecology as well as the retrospective approach to fungal assessment. Some people call it dating more, but it's not really dating more. It's a retrospective assessment.
1: How can our listeners contact you at at your new business?
4: Uh, They can try to reach me at my uh, my number, it's 856-767-8300. Or you can try my email, it's c y a n g. Which is my first initial last name, and then 1000, 000, 1, comcast 000, at comcast.net.
1: Okay. You know, I saved my uh, fa- usually I. Go ahead.
4: Excuse me. Usually I allow people one free email response, but just keep the question simple, no compound questions. Okay.
1: You know, joke. I, I, I didn't want to make. I didn't want to use my last minute to ask a question. I really wanted to use my last minute to, to really make a comment. You know, people that know you know that you're a humble man and that you're a brilliant man. And what most people didn't know, and I didn't even know until I was preparing for, for the interview, that you generously donated funds to establish the State of, State University of New York's Center for Applied Microbiology, and I would like to thank you, and uh, I'm sure the state of New York and students and professors and everyone else uh, would like to do that. It's very, very generous. Okay, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com.
2: DryEase products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions. E R I hyphen dot com.
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop, at J O N D O N dot com.
2: Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com.
1: Links to IEQ radio are available at IEQtraining.com and at unsmoke.com's web pages. If you're interested in American indoor air quality certified training or customized training, please visit the IEQtraining.com website or contact joe.youes at IEQtraining.com. This is Cliff Slotnick saying thank you to our guest, Dr. Chin Yang, my co host, Radio Joe Youes our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, our guest host, environmental Ann Koalecki, and to wingman Chris Boisell. But most importantly to you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us next Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.